So we've come a long way, Jamie, from, say, 1974, when a lunatic tried to kidnap Princess Anne. Oh, we've come a long way from that. And we've already talked about security getting better. I mean, if you look at the attempt to kidnap Princess Anne, in which her chauffeur was shot in the chest, her personal protection bodyguard, police bodyguard, was shot in the shoulder. You know, they're better protected these days. That's the other thing. The risk to the hostage taker is so much greater now. Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. As you know, we are going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we are heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Hostage, that's our subject today. The taking of hostages goes back to man's earliest days. And there are three main reasons why one would take a hostage. First, to extract a ransom, second, to create political leverage, and thirdly, to sow confusion and chaos. Today we will discuss what hostage-taking is and some of the history, from Roman times to the present. We have some famous hostages and hostage situations to talk about, including the effect it can have on the victims, such as Stockholm Syndrome. We will wrap it up with a talk about modern hostage events that particularly drew our attention. It is clear that hostage-taking can be effective. It can work, especially as, like terrorism and assassination, it can deliver huge rewards due to its asymmetrical nature. So, Jamie, what is it about hostage-taking? Well, you honed in on it, Tom, with the talk of asymmetric warfare. It is a way of pressurising the enemy and doing it cheaply and sometimes at very low risk. So it allows either states or terrorist organisations to exert pressure. And again, as you said, it's about extorting ransom at its most basic, it's transactional. But it's also about gaining leverage, political leverage, and sometimes sowing confusion and chaos in the opposition. But quite often you get elements of all three, and that's where it becomes very complex. That's where it becomes very tricky to try and negotiate a path through. And if you look at the modern environment, you know, for example, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, a classic hostage under Iranian control, who was taken in Iran, they continue to come up with false premises to keep her there. And that is the Iranians who have, let's face it, been very good at taking hostages from the 1970s onwards, using it not only to try and get money from the British government, but also to exert pressure in nuclear talks and get everyone back to the nuclear negotiating table. So it's not about anything that she particularly did, as they, as they tend to say when they report it. It's not about her at fault in any way. Absolutely not. I mean, they will just trump charges up. They, they have a backlist of things they can use. So the latest extension of her sentence by year was based on her apparently supporting protests against Iran 12 years ago and talking to the Persian service of the BBC World Service. So you can see that they will always use that. They will always hide behind the Western perception of Iran having different elements of the government at war with each other. They can create this opaque environment and use that to then exert pressure. And they do it all the time. I mean, we'll talk about it later, but, you know, recent examples, 2016, 2020, they released hostages either to promote uh, the nuclear negotiations or to get their own prisoners, for example, out of Thailand who were charged with bombing offences. So this goes on all the time. And Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe has just been caught up in that. And aid workers and journalists are always the most likely targets because they're the ones who are quite often out on a limb, not supported by their government or by their organisations for which they work. 
and they can be easily lifted from their place of work. Do you think that our government has the right approach or the only approach, or should we be doing it differently? It's very difficult to say. I mean, people are always going to attack the Foreign Office for for the way they negotiate, for the way they conduct these things. I mean, I remember on on a different matter, you know, way back in the 1960s when the Germans finally paid compensation to Brits who had been in concentration camps or Nazi labor camps. And people like Airy Neve have been campaigning for 20 years for that. But the Foreign Office put a stop to that every single time because guess what? The West Germans were our new friends and it was the Cold War. So, you know, the instinct of the Foreign Office is always, or or the State Department or any uh, diplomatic venture, is for good relations to have a softly, softly approach, not to antagonise. What, and to protect the nation over the individual? That is one of the problems. That's one of the issues that comes up time and time again. And no one likes individuals rocking the boat. It becomes very thorny, very tricky when an individual is involved. And you can see it, you know, in this case, the Iranians are past masters at this. And there will always be individuals who fall victim. And what about Somali pirates? You know, this is a classic modern case of hostage taking. It was transactional, you know, rather than political pressure. It was largely a monetary thing. And friends of mine who were in kidnap and ransom did a lot of negotiating with Somali pirates. Uh, There was one who had a classic incident where he was talking to the negotiator, who was a businessman from Mogadishu. And suddenly the the negotiator on their side pressed a button on his phone and the KNR, kidnap and ransom negotiator, had a full image of the guy's face with the pirate captain in the background picking his nose <laughs> busted yeah so so you know that can but happen they, the, the Somari pilots they were really fishermen who were being coerced at their end but anyway well again it grew out of a political situation whether it was illegal dumping of pollutants or overfishing by foreign fleets you know they, they certainly had grievances but once the sort of businessmen the hard-nosed negotiators got involved from Mogadishu, then you started getting a piracy business evolving. And as I said, it became transactional. So it became easier in a way to negotiate because you know, when it comes to just money, people understand that. And you know, you, you've, you've got the Somali, the, the Muslim Halawa way of paying money, um, of using trusted end men um, in one location. So it's very difficult to trace where the the money starts and where it ends up. There's no money actually changes hands, they just make ledger entries. Yeah, it's done on trust. So, uh, uh, but but that is another classic Mm. example of of modern hostage taking. They, and, but they've gone the quiet now, haven't they? The well, it's, it's, have they it, sort of got rid of them? They're still there, but it's it's very difficult to mount piracy operations when you have the navies of the world converging on the area and ushering uh, ships through the Gulf. Uh, certainly, you also got private security companies getting involved and the ships that were going through, the merchant ships, the tankers, were better armed, better protected, uh, were sailing in convoy. And it's it's harder for pirates of any description to, to attack those sorts of convoys. Okay, so they've got a bit of a system now that gets them through. They've, they've got a much better system going on. Uh, all right, so remaining in Africa, what about the French and what they get up to in, in Africa? Well, because they're busy in sub-Saharan Africa and they're fighting jihadists and the Brits and other nations are helping them. There is a lot of skullduggery, a lot of negotiation going on and and, and hostage-taking by various jihadist groups that are involved in the Sahara. And so when you get to that situation, it becomes very murky. I mean, in 2021, the French, in order to get four or five hostages released, Western hostages released from these jihadist groups, they released 200 Malawian jihadists. And so you can see that... Is, these, is that a good idea? 
again, mean, isn't that going to mean they'll last for 400 next uh, time? Of course, and this is always the problem. This was the problem the Germans had in the 1970s when they were paying off Bader-Meinhof uh, for hostages and everything else. And it was only when the Germans started playing hardball from about 1977 that Bader-Meinhof started to crumble. They, they, start, they killed themselves, essentially, mm. the core group. And it is this problem that if you start paying people off, you are fueling the racket. And that is always the problem. And a lot of countries that say that they don't negotiate with terrorists or hostage takers, you'll find that they do. And they do it in different ways. But quite often in places like sub-Saharan Africa, you will get countries that have uh, large numbers of jihadist prisoners and then suddenly they are basically forced to release them. It's a classic case of modern hostage-taking and ransom payments and prisoner swaps, and it goes on all the time. All right, well, let's go back in history and have a talk about Roman times. And the Romans were famously uh, keen on their hostages for various reasons, not so much for money, but for, as you said at the beginning, political leverage. They like to have client kings in the far-flung parts of their empire who would be subject to Roman, the Roman Senate. And one of the ways they made sure that that actually happened was that they would take the king's son or youngest son back to Rome as a hostage where he would be raised by a Roman family. But this would also have the benefit of Romanizing someone from that part of the world who was near the top of the tree. And so when they went back to their country, if they didn't have their head lopped off because their father had done something wrong, they would then be an enthusiastic Roman and would help promote the general Romanization of the edges of the empire. And you'll find that so many other uh, kingdoms and empires did exactly the same, whether it was the Persians or the Egyptians, you know, hostages, hostage-taking, the exchange of valuable children of foreign kings was extremely important. And again, it went right up you know, to centuries later. I mean, if you look at J the Jamestown Settlement, which we spoke about in the true founding of America, you, you saw that the English settlers were actually sending some of the children to Powhatan, the Indian uh, native chief, uh, in order to curry favour and to see them installed within the Indian nation. So this has gone on for centuries, for millennia. There's a sort of variation in tone between um, where there's very little empathy between the captive and the, and the um, hostage taker. Uh, but in the sort of Roman or ancient scheme of things, it's it's more of a almost like a verging on arranged marriage. I mean, some of these um, you know marriages in political times were again to try and tie nations together. Yes, it was a negotiating ploy, and if you actually look at the terminology used, you know, the, the things like ranson is ancient French, you know, redemptio, which is the Latin term for buying back. You know, all these terms were being used, and it was seen as perfectly normal. And you know, it, it was not just kingdoms, obviously. It was pirates as well, in the same way that today you get states taking hostages and you get guerrilla organisations or terrorist groups taking hostages. And Julius Caesar, he was uh, taken by pirates, wasn't he, and held hostage? He was, 75 BC. And apparently Julius Caesar actually got the pirates to up their asking price uh, because it gave him greater credibility back in Rome that the asking price was higher. <laughs> Looked better on his Wikipedia page. Yes, I think eventually they settled for sort of 50 talents. So that, that, was, that was what he went. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he went back there and found them and crucified them just to tell people it wasn't a good idea. He was a pretty vengeful sort of character. All right, well, moving on a bit into the, the Middle Ages, uh, we have this whole idea of chivalric code. How does that develop? Well, it developed, again, largely because of the concept of hostage-taking, and that grew out of the grand melee in which knights would basically perform fake battles. And this wasn't a joust. This was teams of knights either going head-to-head 
or having two opposing sides and charging each other and really fighting it out. And what they did was take each other hostage because if you could take a rich knight hostage during a grand melee, you could then ask for horses, for gold, for you name it, suits of armour, and it would be paid. Otherwise, you simply wouldn't hand the knight back. So in a way, there were two things that came from the grand melee. One was martial spirit and fighting skills. It kept people honed. And this is what Richard the Lanhard did on the Third Crusade in the Holy Land. There were always grand melees going on. So it honed the fighting skills, but also it contributed to the whole concept of heraldry because the more plumage you wore, the more you could be recognised, the richer you were, the more likely you were to survive a battle and not to be killed. I mean, people would want to nab you to hold you hostage. And that's what helped develop the sort of plumage and heraldry that was going on. Although, tell that to the French knights who were hit by English arrows at Cressy and Poitiers and Agincourt. It well, didn't always work. No, I mean, that's really what happens when you end up having warfare being uh, rather like a game until you have a sort of moment where one side decides they're actually going to really stick it to the other side and the, the gloves are off. And in that case, the Welsh archers did for the French knights with their short knives. Exactly. So so it, it it's when heraldry comes across the common man, the common soldier, who who isn't going to be benefiting from hostage-taking, then, then you're in trouble. Watch out for John Bull. <laughs> All right, so we have, uh, for that time, and of course one of the great figures of that period was Richard the Lionheart, who himself was taken hostage. He was. He was one of the great examples of famous hostages, and you know, it almost bankrupted England. In fact, it almost bankrupted Aquitaine and other parts of Europe because he was taken hostage by Leopold of Austria because he had annoyed Leopold during the Third Crusade. Uh, and when he took Acre, he very foolishly, with hindsight, threw down Leopold of Austria's banner in the ditch because Leopold was, I think at that stage, was only an archduke and... Uh, so Richard thought, yeah, Richard really didn't rate him. So he went off. And of course, after Richard left, disguised as a Templar knight, heading back to England because he heard King John was taking over the country and overtaxing the people there, Richard ended up being captured, um, taken by Leopold of Austria, and then sold on uh, for a ransom a king's ransom, to the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VI. And that was an absolute catastrophe because Richard's mother, Eleanor Aquitaine, she petitioned the Pope, she raised taxes, she plundered churches for money. But meanwhile, King John, the evil brother of Richard the Lionheart back in England, was trying to raise 80,000 marks, was trying to outbid the ransom by Eleanor of Aquitaine to keep Richard the Lionheart in prison. So King John and Philip of France had this scheme to keep Richard the Lionheart banged up in jail. So they had this contest, but in the end, Eleanor of Aquitaine and Richard won out and Richard was released. King John, one of the great bad guys of history. All right, well, we go over the Atlantic and... What about Atahulpa and Pizarro? It's always claimed that 1532, that was the largest ransom ever paid for anyone. I mean, some estimate that the room full of gold that Pizarro, Francisco Pizarro, asked for would now be worth about $2 billion. It was a huge amount of money. But it didn't stop the conquistadors actually executing Atahulpa. So it didn't save his life but it gained the Spanish a lot of money, a lot of bullion, and uh, really added to the legend of El Dorado, I suppose, which continued for the next couple of hundred years, and why everyone started going out there to try and find gold. 
But that, that ransom situation was, again, classic of its time. I suppose he, he probably felt he didn't have to um, obey the sort of rules because they wouldn't have known the rules. They had no idea at all. It was, you know, when it comes to the fighting between the Spanish and the tribes they conquered, I've always said that, you know, you take the Aztecs and you take the Spanish, you don't know who to support because both were absolutely, both sides were absolutely fiendish in their behaviour to everyone and enslaved everyone. Yeah. All right. Slightly more modern times then. After the Franco-Prussian War, we end up with the Paris Commune and a certain hostage debacle there. Yes, again, you can see how this theme of hostage-taking runs through history. And those hostages were taken, about 500 of them, were taken by the National Guard, by the communards who took over Paris in 1871 for a few months because the Prussians had surrounded Paris, the government had fled really to Versailles and were, were sitting outside, but they eventually they were strong enough to re-enter Paris and put down the commune. And the, the communards in the meantime have managed to kill the Bishop of Paris. They had, they, in one instant, they had taken 50 hostages and uh, killed them all. But the National Guard who did it, the communards who did it, was so drunk that they counted the bodies and found 51 there. They'd killed one of their own in, in the melee, in the grand melee. What was the purpose of, of their hostage taking? Or were they just sort of all in confusion? P partly confusion, partly vengeful, partly they thought that it would uh, spare them when the government forces came in. But what they really wanted to do was just make an example, and it's pretty clear that they probably would have killed the whole lot. But what happened at La Roquette Jail was that the hostages who were there ended up barricading themselves in because of the confusion, and they stopped the National Guard or any communards coming in to kill them. And this was a chaotic period. I mean, you, you saw it with the, the, the women who went around, the petroleurs who were setting fire to buildings. I mean, it was just a mad time. The right. fighting at the barricades, all of that. So it's really our third type of hostage situation, chaos. Yes, and trying to add confusion, trying to get slight political leverage, but really not knowing quite what to do with them yeah. and wanting to spread terror. And this is what you get with some hostage situations, you know, what ISIS were doing, beheading terrorists. It was, it was trying to spread terror using the hostage situation to create a sense of terror in the enemy. Well, we can't leave this section without a brief visit to the Second World War and the Nazis' fake concentration camp. To Regenstadt, and that was really the sort of transit camp that had been used to transport a lot of Jews on the way to the death camps in Poland. And already the Nazis had persuaded the International Red Cross that this was a fine location, that there were things to do, that the children were looked after, there was theatre, there were concerts. But, of course, it was an absolute fake. But come February 1945, Himmler thinks he can leverage the Jews that are left there or some of the inmates that are left there to curry favour with the Allies because by this stage the, the Nazis or elements of the Nazi hierarchy still believed there could be a conditional surrender. So Himmler and his security chief, Carlton Brunner, put out feelers to the international Jewish community. And there was a deal for 5 million Swiss francs for 1,200 lives saved. And that deal was actually struck, but it was in the closing stages of the war. By the time 1,200 Jews were handed over, to the International Red Cross and the Swiss authorities. Uh, you know, the closing days of the Battle of the Berlin were occurring, so nothing really came from it. There was no real political leverage. But you can just see the Nazis casting about, looking for ways to have their sentences lessened or to plea bargain, basically. Well, and get a bit of money at the same time. And get a bit of money. 
And so the people who were there in the camp, they weren't uh, a sort of the high ups in the Jew- Jewish community. No, not, they were not, just a group. Not, not in the slightest. They were just and a group. They were just a group in the same way there were 400 Danes that were eventually taken back to Denmark uh, by the Danish Red Cross and saved. They were very fortunate. Um, so many had gone through that transit camp and were killed uh, in the same way that the Nazis had spent uh, those preceding years clearing out the ghettos and moving everyone to East Europe. But because the Russians were advancing, because those camps were being liberated or their inmates were being sent on death marches westwards, there was nowhere to send those remaining Jews of Theresienstadt, so it made it easier for Himmler to try and negotiate and plea bargain and and put out feelers to the West. Um, He still thought he might take over from Adolf Hitler. Yeah, I think it ended very badly there anyway, didn't it? I think they were all murdered eventually, weren't they, in the camp? Uh, Well, I mean, there were so few left at Theresienstadt because it was really a transit camp, and, you know, it had been a mockery, really, of civilization, which is what the Nazis had earlier in the war tried to promote. This, OK, this, so this whenever image. the Red Cross or whatever wanted to inspect one of these so-called concentration camps, they would take them there and say, look, everyone's having an OK time. Oh, yes. And you look at the reports by the Red Cross and you just see how, how they were fooled. I mean, how they, oh, they were. Oh, the, the the visitors were completely fooled, and and they were taken like like so many um, people who are taken to different camps or go around different countries today. Uh, you know, they're they're shown what the hosts want the people to see, and so they're always going to get just a partial view of what is going on. While staying in Germany, we then had in the seventies the Bader Meinhof, which were very enthusiastic about their hostage taking. Again, Tom, it's a, a great example of you know, not just nations or hierarchs in countries using hostages. It, this is a case of terrorist organisations using hostages. I mean, Bader Meinhof, the Red Army faction uh, formed in 1970, uh, ended up killing over 30 people, um, including Hans Martin Schleyer, who was a hostage of you know, high rank. And you know, it grew from the political movement of the 60s, the, the PLO, the Palestinian movement had started. You had the radicals on the left in Germany. And there was that sort of tie-up, there was that confluence of radicalism and terrorism that came together. And being sort of uh, gently encouraged in the background by the Soviets. Oh, not just gently and uh, gently encouraged, but funded, trained given safe houses, you name it. It would never have functioned without East German and and Soviet support. And by taking hostages, it was used by the Soviets, just as Iran uses hostages today, to exert leverage on the West and certainly on the West German government. And this is what happened. Well, they eventually had to learn the lesson, didn't they? They learnt the lesson and uh, Bader Meinhof crumbled in the end because finally the Germans took a more proactive and decisive role against them rather than paying off. I mean, this was the era of hostage-taking and hijacks, so there were a lot of hijackings going on and hostage situations occurring and Germany tended to pay off the hijackers which, of course, encouraged, as we know, more hijackings. And when it came to Hans-Martin Schleyer, that was the moment when the German government said, enough. And, of course, Hans-Martin Schleyer had had a role in the SS. So the Bader-Meinhof group were trying to create this sort of populist, young person's radicalism that was profoundly against the old guard still being in control in Germany. But hostage-taking was one of those means that they thought they could, they could exert pressure. But in the end, they murdered Hans-Martin Schleyer because the German government was prevaricating and refused to negotiate with them. OK, Jamie. Well, it seems like the 70s really were the time when hostage-taking was all the rage. We had quite a few uh, famous uh, hostage situations 
uh, Getty, Patty Hearst, and also the first time the mention of Stockholm Syndrome was uh, in 1973. So what about Patty Hearst? What was her story? Well, Patty Hearst, like John Paul Getty III, poor little rich kid syndrome in a way. And it leads very neatly to Stockholm Syndrome because here was someone who was kidnapped by an urban guerrilla group, the Symbionese Liberation Army. It was really the 1960s gone terribly wrong, like the Bader-Meinhof gang that established itself in 1970 in West Germany. And here was a group kidnapped Patty Hearst granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. The great newspaper magnet. Yes, so a rich family. And the Symbionese Liberation Army said, well, we'll release her if the family gives $70 of food and help to every person in need in California, which would have cost the family about $400 million at that time. So the family instead gave $2 million to people in the Bay Area who were in need of food and help and housing. And that was pretty chaotic. And Paddy Hearst was not released. And the testimony of the defendants uh, later on sort of showed that she had probably been raped. She was incarcerated for weeks, essentially brainwashed and told to read political tracts You can see this in so many hostage situations. Humans are humans, and they know which side their bread is buttered. It's not simply that they empathise or sympathise with the people who catch them. They simply want to survive. So it's not just... uh, She may not have been brainwashed. She may have been taking a a decision to side with them because the alternative was that she was going to be killed. Well, I think there are emotional and rational reasons for getting into bed with the enemy. I mean, you can see this on a mass scale with French collaboration with the Nazis during the Second World War or East German collaboration by millions with the Stasi. You know, if you think that Reich is going to survive a thousand years or if you think communism is going to survive for years you know, and you want your family to do well or you want to survive, you tend to cooperate. That A lot of people do. It takes a lot of courage to actually stand against it. Mm. And in a hostage situation, when you're wrenched from what you know and you're put in a situation, it is extremely tricky to turn against them, to resist in any meaningful way. So when you when you start to empathise with someone, that it's almost like priming the pump. You end up genuinely empathising with them and... And suddenly, you know, like like training a dog, really, isn't it? You know, you can As, ring a bell and they start to dribble. Yes, and suddenly Patty Hearst found herself holding up a bank <laughs> with an M1 carbine and adopting a revolutionary name and yes. all of that. Up and against the wall, you motherfuckers. That's exactly what she said. And, and eventually she was charged. She ended up having her sentence commuted by Jimmy Carter and was pardoned eventually by... Bill Clinton. So it was a long process. And there's still people who say she should have got what she deserved. But you're always going to get this in hostage situations. And then uh, we had the other famous case at this time of Getty. Another 1970s case. Uh, That was 1973. So he was the year before, the same time that Stockholm Syndrome was invented as a term. And He was incarcerated by the mafia for five months and Ear was sent uh, as part of the negotiations, as part of making contact. And that, again, goes on all the time. There's a friend of mine on a K&R case in Mexico and he was sent a finger. On a what case, sorry? Uh, There was a friend of mine who was on a kidnap and ransom case, uh, K&R case, where he was negotiating on behalf of the family and he was sent a finger. So that sort of thing does happen. It's it's not a one-off. Yeah, that's pretty... Yeah, being sent a finger, I mean, because you've got nine fingers more to go, haven't you? With an ear, you've only got one to go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they'd learned the lesson? Yes, they, they, I shouldn't trivialise it. Apparently they use fruit clippers. Oh, no. <laughs> just, just I've just been trimming my wisteria. They're, <laughs> they're quite effective, actually. Watch your fingers. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, so it still goes on, uh, even today. 
that sort of thing. And also it's obvious pressure on the family, it's coercion, and it's a way of keeping your hostage in check. It's, it's another form of coercion, and physical violence is extremely useful, just as brainwashing and incarceration is in a confined space. And these people, if you're taking someone who's a rich kid away from their comfort zone, they are the last people in the world who are going to be conditioned to deal with that sort of situation. So we've already mentioned Stockholm Syndrome, which is essentially when a hostage has positive feelings towards their captor and they don't know them from any previous encounter, and also a refusal by the hostage to ultimately cooperate with the people trying to rescue them or the police force. And lastly, um, the hostage begins to buy in to the message of the people who are keeping them captive, whatever their left or right wing or political beliefs are underlying their particular organisation. So, Jamie, tell us a bit more. Well, that came from a bank robbery in Stockholm in 1973, where those who were held up by the bank robbers. The bank robbery went wrong, that you ended up with a hostage situation, and the hostages started uh, moving towards and understanding the point of view of the bank robbers. And I think it is this thing that if you're confined with other people and the authorities are outside and you're terrified of the situation in which you find yourself, then the outside starts to look dangerous and where you are starts to be your comfort zone. So you can see why people move towards that position, why they start engaging with those around them. So it's, as we've said, partly survival and partly it is this this, this human need to connect with those around them. And you see this in so many hostage situations. And there are other elements involved, depending on how long the hostage situation lasts. But you can see from the Second World War, where there were prisoners of war, of the Japanese, and there was this sort of informal rule book on how to survive. You know, the, the, the first one being, it's up to the individual to make or break himself or herself, eat whatever food you can get your hands on, mm. uh, stay away from those who are negative and miserable. You know, those sort of rules started to be followed as part of a survival technique. Yes, I heard uh, in the Vietnam War, so slightly later, that the, the people who did best in captivity were the ones who had a slightly a, a I don't care attitude not not that they didn't care for themselves but but they they could let certain things go they, they didn't pin themselves into a corner um, and that they sort of went with the flow which which then meant that they you know, could find a route through and survive completely and the other thing that they found in the Vietnam War is that the number of American prisoners who died because they didn't eat the food they were given they said, oh, I don't like that. I'm not or, going to eat worms or slugs. It, it, or exactly. Whereas those who just shoveled it in, <laughs> that would be me. Well, that, any, <laughs> any, of us who've been to, any of us who've been to the schools we were, it's absolutely delicious. Well, I do remember sitting there with spam in my mouth for about five hours, refusing to eat it. Once. Wait, what about the fish one? That really, do you remember, <laughs> was it called fam? Or something. Oh, there was some horror. There was some horrors. That really was. Yeah, we're 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 sounding like wartime children. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we suffered. (laughs) Yeah, it continued. (laughs) But but when I wrote the Counter Terrorist Handbook, you know, I put in a chapter on how to survive a kidnap, and there are key points there on really surviving. The following is a reading from James Jackson's The Counter Terrorist Handbook: Surviving a Kidnap. Whether you are alone or in a group of captives, how you behave can directly influence both your treatment and your chances of gaining freedom. You will be shocked, scared and disorientated, but go with the situation. Attempt to calm tensions and follow some basic codes of behaviour. These rules will help you in the short term and the long run and are designed to be easily understood and simply followed. You might be a downed airman or an imprisoned tourist. Whatever the scenario... You are the one held captive and at the disadvantage. Be humble enough to understand that your captors call the shots. 1. Prepare for the worst. Easier said than done. 
People respond to kidnap in a variety of different ways, and often there is little that can be done about basic personality types. Some individuals withdraw into themselves, others tough it out. What every kidnap victim shares is the shock, fear and trauma of being ripped from normality and thrown into an environment of life-threatening danger. It can all happen very fast. Your best response is to go with it, not to panic and to stay calm even while your kidnappers are stressed, shouting and wielding guns. You do not want to make their trigger fingers itchier, to get under their feet or to slow them down to the point where they shoot you and run. Accept what is happening and plan for the long term. However terrifying, things will calm down. 2. Do not antagonise your captors. This might sound obvious, but all too often the obvious is ignored. Cooperate as best you can. Be polite. Do not argue, alarm or provoke and avoid abrupt or suspicious movements. Try to humour your captors and be patient. Those who are seen as troublemakers are often the first to be disposed of. Demeanour and voice both have a role. In a sense, you are all in it together in this high-stress environment. Irritability and a strident or high-pitched tone can adversely affect the mood of your kidnappers. A quiet and calm approach on your part will earn their respect and is a starting point for gaining more favourable treatment. Ask for food and water and medication if required. Compliance on your part is advisable. Subservience is not and will get you kicked. The same considerations apply if you've been arrested in a foreign country. Equally, however, you should be firm as to your innocence if you are being accused of a crime and try to insist on being allowed to contact your family, office or local embassy representative. 3. Maintain faith in yourself. Remember, you are not in the wrong and you have not been forgotten. There will be many people out there working for your safe release. Bear in mind that kidnaps occur for a reason and in most cases it is either to make a political point or to raise money. It is in the interest of your captors to keep you alive. So make it easy for them and make it easier on yourself. Keep yourself occupied, dig deep for inner strength and try to gain a long-term perspective. An inability to keep your nerve will not help your situation, prepare you for your incarceration or endear you to your captors. Four, set yourself positive goals. Simply bearing up under the circumstances is probably not enough. Be proactive and outward-looking and set yourself positive goals to fulfil. Your world will have shrunk to a few bare walls. Do not allow yourself to shrink with it. Build human relationships with your captors and strive to manage yourself, your time and your personal environment. Self-reflection and introspection are fine, but too much navel-gazing can lead to inertia and depression. Reach beyond your current situation and try to adapt to what is happening. You could be here a long time. Communicating with others and engaging your own mind games and mental gymnastics should help maintain your perspective and mental equilibrium. Work hard at it. 5. Be a human, not an object. As your incarceration continues, the initial terror and confusion may well subside into a more routine pattern of daily life. Use this as an opportunity to find common ground and build relationships with your kidnappers. You might think this superficial, but it is important. The more they see you as a human being rather than a nameless object, the less likely it will be that you are the one selected initially for specific maltreatment or execution. Gradually put out feelers. Use the common denominators of football or family to appeal to their instincts as fellow human beings and ensure they know you as an individual. Think of this as you indoctrinating them, rather than them influencing you. You may despise them, but it is for your benefit. You have a name. Encourage them to use it. I, of course, the rules have slightly changed now, because if you find yourself on a hijacked aircraft, unlike the 1970s, you, you don't just sit it out you bloody well fight now because you know that you're probably being taken over by jihadists. Who, who, are, who are just going to die anyway. They're who, going to kill who, you anyway. Whose only goal is to die. So, yes. so the, as I said, those rules have changed. But if you are caught in a kidnap, there are, there are certainly rules yeah. that 
professionals and experts would 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 advise you to follow so what what would be i mean obviously they had that thing 9-11 but what would you do if you were in that situation today on an airline well now you would fight and 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 but you have to sort of get yourself organized you can't just go off half cocked yes i mean the the the, the old rules were don't sit in first class don't make yourself obvious you know, sit in economy be low pro i mean all you can hope for now is is that there's going to be an air marshal on board who's going to do part of the fighting for you. Yeah, or, or actually on that train in Europe, those those three um, sturdy American soldiers who took on that jihadi, didn't they? And I think there was a I think there was a British businessman, and as there was well a sort of helped. guy with an um, yeah British, Brit with an umbrella as well. What was what was interesting? The French guards on the train actually hid in a cupboard. Yeah, there you go, Jamie. Kaching. Yeah, gets it in. It's the money shot. Good <laughs> time. So in, in the more modern times, from the late 60s and, and the 70s, um, we're going to talk about how this hostage-taking evolved in the Middle East, starting uh, with Iran. Well, if you have uh, sort of complex political situations, if you have one country, one state that feels itself weaker, then, as we said right at the beginning... It's a type of asymmetric warfare. It's a way of getting back, of exerting pressure. And so when you get a country like Iran, when you get a situation like the Middle East in which Iran is involved, then hostage-taking can be a very useful tool, and not just for raising funds, but really for exerting pressure and exerting pressure where it hurts on the enemy which from Iran's point of view is always going to be the United States. So this was after the exile and fall of the Shah of Iran and the revolutionary government taking over in 1970s and the late 70s. And the embassy siege and eventual occupation in late 79. And those American hostages, 52 American diplomatic staff, they were held hostage for 444 days. So in the meantime, there were so many other things going on. There were so many operations. There was Operation Eagle Claw to try and get them out. That was a disaster for America. You had what went on with the hostage situation in Beirut later on, and Iran very heavily involved in that. You had the Iran-Contra scandal in America, where arms were going to be traded for the return of hostages. So you can see that Iran uses hostage situations from that time onwards for gaining pressure, for getting leverage on their opponents. Um, you can see that just over a decade ago when the Iranian Revolutionary Guard took 15 British sailors and Royal Marines captive while they were inspecting uh, ships in the Gulf. So that created a pressure point on the British government. So the Iranians are always trying this, and that is a key problem of but dealing it, with the Iranians. At the, at the time, in the 80s, it seemed to be never out of the news, did it? That there was one one thing after another, you know, whether it was uh, Jackie Mann or... or um, American hostages, or I remember Roger Cooper was a an English businessman who spoke uh, Farsi and and worked in Iran. Was taken, was taken hostage and kept for five years. And was he was asked um, when he was finally released, he uh, and he was in Heathrow, uh, how he'd survived. And, and he he did say, anyone like me who's been educated in an English public school. And then served in the ranks of the British Army is quite at home in a third world prison, which uh, shows a bit of stiff upper lip. But in fact, he did suffer quite serious um, post-traumatic stress. Although I heard that when he was in prison, one of the ways he kept his sanity was by doing quadratic equations on the back of a door. That would actually make me insane. <laughs> Insaner. That would give me post-traumatic stress. <laughs> yeah. Post-mathematic stress. But but you you can see the complexity of that in things like Beirut. I mean, between 1982 and 1992, you had over a hundred Western hostages being taken, and up to eight of them died in captivity. A lot of them didn't get the medical attention they should have been given, and some of them were kept 
in captivity for up to five years, if you take someone like Terry Waite. So it was a pretty hideous situation. And there are probably only 12 people involved in actually taking people captive. They call themselves Islamic Jihad. But so often, they were essentially working for the Iranians who were using them as proxies to, again, exert pressure on the West. But they, they did actually reserve a much more violent treatment for uh, William Buckley of the CIA when they took him hostage. Oh, William Francis Buckley had a terrible time and the videos that were sent to the CIA of his torture by Hezbollah, but probably with Iranian involvement. I mean, certainly Iranian intelligence was involved in that. And you can see how quickly the networks that... Buckley had established in Beirut were rolled up. All his agents were hoovered up and disappeared. He was hideously tortured and injected with drugs. And apparently in the videos of his torture, he was not only screaming but drooling and uh, completely out of it. So there was obviously professionalism involved in his interrogation. And it went on for 15 months and at least, and then they killed him. Yes, they say he died from a heart attack and his remains weren't found for another six years till 1991 when they were found by the Danes near Beirut Airport. So he had a terrible time, but he made that fatal error of not changing his route to work, of being overconfident, of continuing to live in the apartment in which he had been for some time. And the one thing you don't do in a an extremely hostile environment like Beirut was follow the same routine. And I think that he believed in his own intelligence network, his own agents, his own sources, far too much, and he paid the price for that. And then on the 7th of October in 1985, the Palestinian Liberation Front took the Achille Laro, a ship, a hostage. Yes, and again, you can see how hostage-taking can be used to gain leverage and the PLF wanted 50 prisoners released from Israeli jails. They wanted to sail to Tartus. And there was apparently a plan to get off somewhere and, and murder Israelis. In the end, they contented themselves with throwing Leon Klinghofer, a disabled passenger, overboard. And that became a notorious incident. And he was he was Jewish, wasn't he? He was. Uh, in, in fact, the, really most of the tourists on board were. They were sailing from Alexandria um, around the Med, around the Eastern Med. And so uh, it all went horribly wrong. And although they wanted to sail to Tartus, the, the four terrorists who took over the ship, that was denied. So they went back to Port Said. Eventually, they agreed to leave the ship and were forced down on, in their airliner uh, by US jets and landed in Sicily. And then there then followed a, an argument, a, a, a huge quarrel between the Italians and the Americans on who should take custody of those terrorists. And the Italians wouldn't hand them over to Delta Force. So they were charged, imprisoned in Italy. The ringleader actually escaped. But you know, that's the sort of international incident that can occur as a result. And there's always a subtext, there's always an agenda in these hostage situations. It's so rarely money when it involves a large terrorist organisation. So often the agenda, the subtext, is to prevent further involvement by a larger power. And you know, in Beirut, you saw this with the hostage-taking, that Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad were terrified and Iran was terrified. The Americans would increase their presence there and their influence there after the bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in 1983 when 241 U.S. servicemen were killed. And so you know, that was one of the reasons that those hostages were captured and it, pressure was exerted. So with the PLF, with the Achille Lara, that, again, was a, a, an, another way of pressurising the Israelis in the international community. And 
it was another example of what could go wrong and how hostage situations could develop in ways that people don't expect. And then after we had the second Gulf War, we end up with Islamic State. Yes, and in a way that's more simple because although they wanted to create a caliphate, one of the ways of doing that, one of the ways they thought they could project influence, project terror, was simply by beheading their captives. And it was highly effective. If you saw what happened uh, after the sort of 2010, you know, the sort of uh, publicity that came about with terrorists such as Jihadi John and the beheadings and the throat cutting that, in which they engaged. All right, Jamie. Well, that brings us up sort of to modern times, but it does beg the question that as every different type of hostage-taking seems to have been practised over the last several decades, does that mean that, um, you know, they kind of run out of ideas? Is it, in other words, is it, is it worth taking hostages? It's an interesting one on whether it's reached its high-water mark. And I think it probably has. Certainly the mega hostage-taking and hijacking of the 70s is past, uh, partly because the authorities are better at responding to it, not just in negotiating, but I think that the special forces are better trained in dealing with it because uh, people now know that if they're taken hostage, it's highly likely, certainly if it's a Middle Eastern group, that they are going to be sacrificed uh, as part of a mass suicide uh, in a jihadi gesture. Which, so, um, which undermines the whole sort of hostage dynamic. It does undermine the whole hostage dynamic. All those ideas of how to behave go out of the window because you might as well put up a fight. I, I think that has changed. I also think that the advent of things like bit currency. Uh, we talked about halal and, and the Islamic form of uh, financing, that with bitcoins, with ransomware, you know, the fact you can do cyber attacks, which are so cheap mm. that someone can sit in a bedroom and, and hold a corporation to ransom, you don't have to go through the hassle, the difficulties, the logistics of actually, one, kidnapping someone, two, feeding them and keeping them captive. Yeah, the general uh, bloody mayhem. The general bloody mayhem of it and, and being spotted by witnesses and everything else. So it's so much easier to leave the human element out of it. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that most hostage situations that go on today, certainly on a mass scale, are sort of sub-Saharan Africa because you're talking about the far reaches of the desert, inaccessible places, and warlordism that that goes on in so many of these locations. So it will continue there. But I think in the developed world, it's so much easier not to take a hostage. I heard that uh, in America, a casino was recently stung with a cyber attack. And the way they accessed their whole system was via the fish tank, which had a Wi-Fi enacted thermometer or filter system and they hacked their way into that and from that they got into the casino so i mean you know these security things are uh, rife with with uh, openings if if people know what they're doing exactly and also if you're using proxies to represent you to do your dirty work it's so much easier to use proxies that are simply doing cyber attacks. It makes you more money. So the Russian state, for example, is certainly behind, certainly involved, and certainly knows about the many Russians who are involved in attacking American meat processing or, or gas and oil pipelines or hospital networks or anything like that. And again, why would Russia want to dirty its hands or even use proxies like the old Red Army faction when it can simply use ransomware and hold corporations and states to uh, ransom that way. So we've come a long way, Jamie, from, say, 1974, when a lunatic tried to kidnap Princess Anne. Oh, we've come a long way from that. And We've already talked about security getting better. I mean, if you look at the attempt to kidnap Princess Anne, in which 
her chauffeur was shot in the chest, her personal protection bodyguard, police bodyguard was shot in the shoulder. You know, they're better protected these days. That's the other thing. The risk to the hostage taker is so much greater now. And again, in that situation, and people have always said she told the guy to fuck off, but apparently not. Well, I think she probably, when he was trying to pull her out of the car and and, uh, she was being, you know, it was a tug of war between being pulled in and out of the car, she did say when he told her to get out, not bloody likely. But she she did also say in an interview afterwards with Parkinson um, that she kept very cool about the whole thing, you know, as as recommended in your kidnap notes. So you don't antagonise the person by telling them they're an idiot or whatever. You have to you stay calm and be as reasonable as possible under the situation. And uh, and she she very much felt that 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 wasn't the time to give him a telling off. I saw her fall off in a water jump once at badminton horse trials, and she was pretty cool then as well. Yeah. So I can imagine that the hostage shaker was always going to come off worse. Yeah, she said she'd been, to Parkinson's, she said she'd been scrupulously polite. (laughs) (laughs) She also said it would be silly to be rude at that stage. I I (laughs) can imagine, I can imagine. So it does show how the world has changed and how technology has moved things on. Excellent, Jamie. Well, that's all very interesting. And I think before we close this session, we should have our traditional postscript. So where are you going to take us? Back to the postscript. I I want to take you back to Colditz Castle at the end of the war, Tom. 1945, the Americans are moving towards it. As you know, Tom, Colditz held the big escapers amongst Allied prisoners in Germany. So... They were sent uh, to Colditz Castle, uh, people like Douglas Bader and Airy Neve. And the troublemakers. The troublemakers. And among those troublemakers were 21 prominenti. These weren't necessarily the big escapers, but they were the ones that the Germans believed had some sort of clout, had some sort of connection. They were the celebrity hostages, if you like. And... The Nazis weren't quite sure how they would end up using them. But in the closing stages of the war, as the Americans approached Colditz, all 21 of them were removed. And they were removed by SS General Berger. And he was one of the 12 unholy disciples around Himmler. And it's believed that Himmler had ordered Berger to either execute them as the Americans approached or to take them down to southern Germany, down to Bavaria, for this mythical southern redoubt in Bavaria. Well, keep them as the sort of the ultimate hostage. Yes, use them as human shields, if you like. But I think the Germans totally overestimated how important uh, these prisoners were. I mean, they included Giles Romley, who had to be a nephew of Clementine Churchill, and... Adolf Hitler has said if anything happens to him, um, you know, they will be in deep trouble. They'll be executed themselves, whoever lays a finger on him. Uh, there was some, someone called John Elphinstone who was related to King George VI. But, but none of these people were particularly well-known or had high profiles. And one or two of them were deeply disliked. Uh, to Colditz by the other prisoners. So one of them was push them out the door and say you can have it. Yes, well, one of them was a journalist who, before the war, had been very, very pro-Nazi. So it, it was a very eclectic bunch. They were taken by Berger, and he eventually used them. And this was classic hostage negotiation. Of course, he handed them over to the Americans, and got a lower sentence in return when he was eventually incarcerated. So they did work as hostages in the end. Yeah. Well, and also we did a podcast on um, heroines of the 20th century, and in that one of them was Odette Churchill. Um, And I I don't know if you remember, we, we talked about her. And one of the reasons why she perhaps survived, although she was very badly treated, was because her link to Churchill and the same thing that the high ups in the Nazi regime were concerned that if you know she was bumped off like so many other of those women, that uh, there would be a very high price to pay. But the strange thing was, it was only because she was linked to the other agent called Churchill, and eventually married him, 
And he wasn't actually related to Churchill, but he found it very useful as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It allowed yeah, him it to just survive. just the name, yeah. Yes, so the Germans always sort of measured it incorrectly, and, and certainly they got the prominenti wrong in terms of the leverage they would have or how important they were. So do you think that if we go into battle, you and me today, we should, we should call ourselves James and Tom Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> call me Bojo. You've at least got the right, right hairbrush, initials for your hairbrush. Jackson to Johnson, such a stretch. I think Ashton might be a problem. They may, they may just bump us off even quicker. Oh, they will. Well, I'll offer you up immediately, Tom, as part of my negotiating position. No, I think position. I'm, I'd be much more valuable than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Brilliant. Well, let's hope that you never find yourself in a hostage situation. And if you do, I hope that our discussion today might lend you some comfort or at least prepare you a bit for your ordeal. And perhaps on this occasion, don't share this podcast with your prospective captors. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. I'll put images relating to this podcast on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com, and on our Instagram feed. Please subscribe to BVH on the app you use. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us a review. And if you do nothing else, just share this podcast with one other person. That really helps. Thank you. And good luck. You haven't said thanks, Jamie. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> thanks, Tom. Thank you and good luck.